and coordination. Namaste viewers. Thank you for joining Jaipur Dialogue, day three of the education and culture element of India in 2030. Now, this is a very remarkable issue. We are today going to focus on the caste-based uh, attack that happens on Hindus. One of the biggest clashes today about Hinduism and Hindus is a caste-based nomenclature definition of divisions in Hindus. The belief that Shudras were socially inferior is as much false as it is a myth. Untouchability of today didn't exist in Bharat of old times. Many illustrious names were of mixed parentage. Krishnaji Bhagwan Krishna himself attributed quality and actions of men that were not determined by birth. Yet, Bharat is a cradle of supposed casteism as it is being talked about. No country, no country is more tolerant and accepting than India and than Hindus. It's, India has been home. India is a home to all persecuted religions in the world. Yet, there is more international rebuke for the death of of a missionary, accidental or otherwise, than the ethnic cleansing of Kashmiri Pandits from Kashmir. To discuss this issue of caste, how we are manifesting ourselves in it, how are we contesting that, how are we belying this, I wanted to have welcome three amazing panelists today. Amazing. I mean, I, they, these names don't need introduction anymore. Their presence is enough for us to know who they are. And if you don't need, know them, just Google them. Don't let me waste my time telling them who you are, they are. Because it's my privilege to be associated today on this platform with three giants of Hindu, Hindu, Hindu belief systems. Dr. David Froley here in the US, Sri Bharat Guptaji from India, and Pandit Sharmaji, Satish Sharmaji from Hello, New Zealand. And thanks to technology, we are communicating with each other live in the moment. So going by the dictum of alphabetical order, I will request Bharat Guptaji to highlight his thoughts on this bizarre, bigoted attack on Hindus on the caste basis. How did it come about? When did it start? Let's know the history a bit. And then we, I also want to dive into where do we go from here? knowing what we know. Bharatji. Thank you very much, Shri Guru Bhionamaha. I'm happy to be with my very, very old friend, David Frawley and uh, uh, Pandit Satish Sharmaji, whom I meet today, and I hope to meet again and again. And of course, with you, Vibhutiji, and all the audience of Jaipur Dialogue. Now, talking on the subject of Varana, Varana and Jati, as the Indian terms go. And then, of course, using the term caste, because that's being used in the English language 
by European scholars and Americans and Indologists and whole lot of people, including politicians, one has to <clears throat> look at a bit of history and then the present issue. Now, the present issue is something uh, which is perhaps only four or five year old with the current setup and the current things that are going on in the United States and this new wokeism. And if you see it in the context of this wokeism, then you have to talk about it in a different way uh, because they have equated the caste or the so-called Hindu caste system as they look upon it and as they try to foist it on everybody else's mind. Uh, if you look upon what they are saying and equating it with uh, German Nazism, uh, Hitler's uh, anti-Jewish uh, activities, and then of course the white-black conflict. Now this is a very, very recent political jargon which has come about and one has to confront it as the battle of the day. This is one thing. But if you look upon how the, uh, the West, so to speak, or how the very early Christian missionaries or the 19th century Indologists, or even uh, you know, some of the very contemporary Indologists, uh, very famous ones uh, in the North American continent, uh, have been looking upon caste is the very, very old formula of uh, uh, what was called Hindu as the homo hierarchicus, that this is the essential crux of Hindu thought. Now, disregarding all the Mahavakyas of Hinduism, like Sarvamidam, Khalu Brahma, that everything is of the same level, everything comes out of Brahma, disregarding what is given right in the beginning of Manusmriti, where it is said that Brahma and Brahma and Brahmana are one substance and then according to certain activities, they fall into different roles. Disregarding all that, they postulate a category which is enforced by the so-called Brahmins. Now, there, is, there are so many uh, stereotypes created over the years that they have made a total picture which is historically neither true, which is unjustified, which is not the journey of India in the last uh, recorded uh, 5,000 or 7,000 years of textual evidence. So we have our side of the story. I'm, I, after all these years, I'm very clear that I have my side of the story to tell. And I have to confront what is their side of the story, the Indologist story, the Western story. And one has to say that, look, you are deliberately portraying things which did not even exist. For instance, now, the high point uh, is the so-called lowest varna or the shudra varna and they would go immediately to the so-called untouchable 
Now, in ancient India, and according to the descriptions one find in the text, of course, there were some people who were untouchable in the sense that you would not go and sit with them or eat with them. But then those were parameters which were drawn, just as you draw parameters uh, today. I mean, you don't go in, into an operation theater today with your shoes on. There are certain precautions that you take right now. There are parameters and boundaries that you draw for the sake of certain divisions that you have to make for survival. Similar things were done at that time. For instance, a chandal would not be allowed to come and sit in anybody's, just anybody's home. But then one has to see what is the sociological order, what was the real thing that was going on, and one has to see if this was the dominant thing. After all, this is one small part of the activity of a very vast society in which people behaved in so many different ways. And the norms were so different and so complicated that unless you understand the totality of that society, you cannot understand the thought behind it. The whole question of whom to touch and whom not to touch is a very sophisticated idea. And the idea of what is pure and what is impure is very different from what is considered to be discrimination in modern times. Uh, I mean, this is something so different in habits. This is something so different in the whole social order. And it is so different in terms of what was considered as valuable and what was considered as something which had to be done. Now, I have just concentrated a bit more upon something like touch or touchability or untouchability or pure or impure. But these are some fundamental concepts which have to be seen in the context of something highly philosophical, something very practical and something everyday. And unless you see the whole picture of the Varana Ashram, you will not be able to see that this was a very complex cooperative web. It was not a society where people were pulling and tugging at each other. It was not a society where people were rebelling to come out of their caste. As a matter of fact, even in my childhood, I have seen that people thought of their caste as something to be proud of because the profession and the work which they performed had to be of high quality according to what they were trained being in that particular jati or caste. So for them, what was very important was the excellence of their work. And thank you, thank you, you very much for a brilliant opening statement that you made. Yeah. David, I would come to you, Dr. Frawley, asking you one particular question that you know is it rotates in my mind all the time. And that is that how did we, the Hindus or India, allow a jati and varna 
to be so devastated in the West, the way it got distorted and devastated in the concept. And the second part comes in my mind is, why in the West there is so much animosity about things that are related to Hinduism, Sanatan, and caste has been made as a beating stick to all of us. Your thoughts on that? Yes. Yes. Uh, namaste, Shri Guru Bhyo Namaha. I'm very happy to be with you, Vibhuti, and my friend Bharat, and Professor Satish Sharma, who I've also heard a great deal about. Yes. Well, speaking from the West, we, let's go back to the whole colonial era. Whole colonial era was about supporting native and indigenous peoples, of which Hindus were one. And caste was actually a concept that was used in colonial Mexico and Brazil to subordinate the native uh, populations, but in the other sense that the colonial people were the upper caste and the native people were the uh, lower caste. Now, in the Indian context, they came into contact with a more complex and still society that had some control of itself. So they wanted to dismantle that society. And to dismantle that society, they saw a tremendous social cohesion based upon Varna, which is not caste, but stage of development, and also Jati, huge community, extended community, extended family very deep beliefs, rituals, and celebrations that blocked conversion, great gurus, great philosophies, great teachings. So to counter that, they tried to de-legitimize uh, the Hindu society, just as they tried to delegitimize Vedic texts by making them primitive, or as Bharat said, ignoring the Vedanta, Sarum, Kalvidam, Brahma, taking things out of context, and of course, the colonials control the education in India since Macaulay, and they control all the educational material in the West, including the media, anti-casting went to New York Times, etc. And it was very central to conversion because you could use the caste oppression emotion to draw money from the West to convert people in India. And so it was largely connected to missionary influences, as well as to political power. The British discredited India as a great civilization in order to rule it and expropriate all of its wealth. And they also then had to try to undermine the Hindu society. And they saw caste as a weak point because this concept of untouchability, they could spin around in various ways. And we also have to remember in the 19th century when this started, slavery was still there in the United States. Slavery was still there with the British. It was all throughout Africa. And even in Africa, they did a very interesting thing. They blamed slavery on the blacks and they used slavery to undermine the black society uh, as well. So it was a very complex means of doing that. And it got ingrained into all the American and Western textbooks, uh, political policies, and above all, all these charity groups, whether missionary or not, who wanted to make money and convert and change India. So caste then could be this kind of black shadow that could negate anything else. And at the same time, people in the West then were revolting or wanting to change, go against slavery and all of that. So that could be put into that liberal mindset uh, as well. 
And the other thing we have to remember is this division of roles, uh, Bart has already talked about it, is a based upon functions, one being many functions, as the Vedic said, Purusha is everything. But with technology, we had the spread of education, uh, we had uh, manpower being replaced by machine power. So there was also a movement away of that use of human beings that was part of the earlier non-technological society. So putting all these together, India could be challenged on the caste basis to negate everything else, and particularly then later the Marxist mentality in the name of equality and social equality and all of these things could highlight this and use it again as the one point to ignore, cover over, or uh, misinterpret everything else. Thank you very much for a, a very clear, clear uh, enunciation of your point of view. And I'm coming to now with, to Mr. Satishji. You have written a book and you are part of the colonial ruler the Brits were. And so the caste element has a lot to play with the colonial mindset. And in the colonial mindset, as Dr. Froley very, very eloquently put it, it was all about domination and subjugation. It was not about freedom. Subjugate the native, destroy the native. And they did it very successfully by, you know, culturally shaming us, uh, you know, shaming us in every sense of the way, you know, uh, you know, even talking, even ridiculing the physical diminution also happened. And as if they were doing everything as a favor to us. So, Sharmaji, how do we go about, we know about the colonial minds, the way they colonized us. Now, going forward, I also want to hear from you, how do we go about the decolonizing of the mind? Om Guru Vyo Namaha, and my naman to Professor Gupt and Dr. Floriji. Uh, as I say, I have been inspired by their many, many decades of service to our Sanatana Dharma and uh, much of the courage which they have shown by being pioneers is something that uh, people who have followed them like myself have benefited from enormously. So I'm genuinely honored and delighted to be sharing a platform with them. You have put a couple of very pertinent and contemporary questions forward, and they are very, very much, um, uh, shall we say, they're questions and issues which I've had to deal with in the last two or three years here in the United Kingdom. So I have a wealth of practical experience to, to bring to the, the conversation. But before I do that, I just wanted to touch on this notion that um, the, the title of this session is about a straight jacket and has caste been a straight jacket for Hindus. And in, a, in essence, it has. And uh, here's how I see it. I mean, we've all heard of the, uh, the, the statement about an emperor who has no clothes where the emperor is actually stark naked, but everybody around him is fearful of telling him that he's actually um, in his birthday suit. And so they all conspire for their own personal benefit to maintain the lie that he's fully clothed. Now, when I thought of that analogy, it struck me that uh, Hindus are in the same situation. We have been told that we are bearing a straight jacket, that this thing called caste defines us, limits us, it's our clothing, it's that by which we are recognized. And by and large, we have bought in to the peer group pressure without scrutinizing the fact and saying, actually, no, I'm not wearing this straight jacket. It is not something that is mine. And uh, I refuse to have it foisted upon me. So, yes, we have been put into a straight jacket, this concept called caste. And being naive and innocent and genuinely good hearted people as the people are, we have 
moved into reflection and introspection. And we have uh, absorbed this. It's almost become a subliminal guilt that every Hindu has carried who didn't know what the truth was has carried with them. And it's been a vulnerability in our Hindu psyche in every area and every field that we engage with. This vulnerability has been exploited by those who would seek to destroy the, the last substantial and still relatively integrated indigenous pagan civilization extant at this moment in time. And they have sought to exploit this uh, vulnerability at every opportunity, and they seek to mention it and speak about it and leverage the benefit, the civilizational benefit that uh, barbarians would seek to acquire by inflicting this um, death by a thousand wounds approach upon us. The trouble is that they, I think, extend, overextended themselves with their desire to extinguish us too quickly. Here in the United Kingdom, we have three generations of, a of our Bharatiya community. And in that time period, we have been dharmic, purely dharmic. And as a result, we have grown organically without the identity of caste being in our awareness. There is no caste-based um, legal system. There's no recognition of caste in constitutions or anything like that here in the United Kingdom. And so we were free of caste consciousness. Our youngest generation, the third, fourth generations here, had no concept of this. But what the Evangelical Church of England did was they tried to break us. Because we're becoming substantial, influential, wanting to contribute more than just taxes to the exchequer, wanting to contribute a better understanding of how human beings could exist together, how we could explore spirituality, religion, using some of the principles that we've been blessed to have accumulated over the years, they decided we needed to be broken and they leveraged and deployed the same divide and rule strategy which they did in 1844, uh, 4th of January 1844 in Bharat and they tried to deploy it against us, us here. Now as uh, Padmatma uh, works his uh, mysterious, uh, mysterious works in his own ways, uh, Prabhuki Lila as we say, he decided that this was something that we needed to know about and a few of us awoke to this accusation that we were all casteists in this country shocked and horrid. One thing that um, came out of it, which I realized straight away, that if caste becomes recognized in law, which is what they wanted to do, it would deny a Hindu the right to be treated as innocent and equal in the eyes of the law. It would enshrine into law a presumed guilt, a presumption of a hierarchy. It would judge me on the basis of my surname as being guilty by birth, um, because of this lineage, and therefore to be treated and denied under law with an equal hearing. I would no longer be presumed innocent until proven guilty. I would be presumed to be guilty, and I would need to actually prove my innocence. This is the, the devious nature of what this uh, uh, caste trope is intended to achieve, and it's been doing it so successfully for such a long period of time. So we set about um, trying to understand this, and we have in the last two years achieved something quite wonderful. I think once and for all, we have established in the English language, and this has not been refuted, it has not been undermined, it has not been defeated, that there is absolutely no, there is no scriptural approval, no scriptural explication, no scriptural recommendation of a hereditary, hierarchical, endogamous social structure in any of our Shastra. There is no connection between Shastra and this dreadful way of organizing a society called caste. So we can break this word 
this phrase from Hindu caste system, we can remove the Hindu aspect of it in its entirety. And I'm more than happy to challenge anybody who would seek to um, refute that. I look forward to the opportunity of, uh, of doing that. So there is no such thing as a Hindu caste system. A consequence of that is that we should therefore not appropriate it. We should, ex we should exclude it from our thinking. And every time I hear one of our own Hindus refer to somebody and say, well, he was in this caste. And, and I say, no, 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 he wasn't in a caste. He was in a Jati, he was in a Bradri, he was in a Samaj, he was in a Parampara, <laughs> he was in a Kol, he was part of a Gotra. He was never a part of a caste. Caste is a hereditary hierarchical endogamous system and it has no feature in any of our uh, history or indeed our Dharmshastra. This has now been established. That was the first objective that we needed to do. But there is a, the next step is what do we do about it? Now, because we were actually faced with this as a very real threat to us, we needed to work out what to do about it. And what we did about it was a journey of four or five years. We had to move from just Gyan Shakti. We had to move to Icha Shakti and develop enough community will to make a change happen. And then we had to move to Kriya Shakti, which was to execute and generally become active enough to make the change that needed to happen and to prevent um, this atrocity from being inflicted, this hate speech from being enshrined in law against us. And the book that I had to write, as, as I say in the prologue, I never had any intention to write a book and I had certainly no desire to write while I'm cast. But the journey that we went through is a journey that I think now every Hindu is going to go through. As we work through this idea of what caste is, as we become familiar with it, we will recognize that within the understanding of what's going on, we have then the responsibility to dismantle, dismantle this colonialist trope, which is still being proliferated, it's still being used against us. Only two or three days ago, Harvard University Students' Union accepted the word caste as something that they would include in discrimination um, legislation, I suppose, in their, in their rules. So they are now saying, yes, caste exists. Yes, it's Hindu. And if somebody comes to us and says, I've been discriminated against um, on the basis of my caste, it's a valid position. And so we now need to dismantle each and every one of these occurrences. And in the book and in some of the talks that we're doing and will continue to do, we lay out the toolkit for doing this. So we're, we're going to launch a toolkit in the new year on how this can actually be done. So yes, we have work to be done, but I'm, I'm very confident that now the information, the historical uh, understanding, the scriptural clarity, all of these threads have come together. And with a bit of uh, focus and a bit of determination, I think we will see within the next four or five years, this colonialist trope, which has been responsible for polluting and tainting and preventing so many Hindu to Hindu relationships. Just think since 1844, how many wonderful relationships Hindus could have had with each other. Each and every one of them was tainted and poisoned by this. We can remove this. We have got, I think, the mimetic vaccine to this mimetic virus now. And I'm just looking forward to it being deployed with as much enthusiasm as we have deployed the, uh, the vaccinations for COVID-19. Thank you very much. Uh, we, have, we have also given the treatment for the decolonization of the mind about the vaccine and the virus. Thank you very much for that wonderful suggestion. And that battle must will go on. So I would expect that you are talking about four to five years, Satishji, uh, that 2030, we will get rid of the caste straight jacketing. That can Hindu you imagine? Can you imagine a Bharat without caste consciousness? I think, I, I think I, I'm, I'm already making a lot of appeals to people is that 
India, Modi will, Modi ji will do the biggest favor to the universe. Forget about India alone. If he took that leadership daring stand of saying caste is abolished in India, caste-based reservations are abolished in India, and it will only be economic criterion because poverty has no caste. Poverty knows no religion. And if you make that bold, bold proclamation, I think that will make a, you know, a real tectonic shift in the, in the social hierarchy. Before I jump to the next part of the thing, I want to do something about the home project as a saying, housekeeping. Uh, one is that our greatest of gratitude to Suresh Gandamji for sponsoring this show in the memory of Surya Prakash Rao Gandamji. Thank you very much for coming forward and supporting us in the manner that you are doing. The number two part is that people who are encouraged to ask questions because you have three brilliant minds here on an issue where every Indian is straight-jacketed. You know, it has happened in New York. It has happened in California, where children have come home and asked their parents, what caste am I? What caste are you? Are we? We have never been told about that. And parents exclaimed, I never told you my caste. Who asked you this? It's happening in schools. Hindus are being branded as being casteist. So I'm coming to reversing the, the, the guest order. I'm coming to David on this part, is that how do we combat this thought distortion? And I'm asking this question of you and all the three panelists, also with reference to the fact that we were very elevated societies in the ancient Bharat was very elevated. How do we re reclaim that elevated equilibrium again? David. You are mute, sir. You are mute. You are mute. You are mute. Yeah. Yes. Yes, Vibhuti. Yes. I wanted to bring in one more point here about this discussion that's a very crucial here. The equation of caste with racism, that Brahmins are white-skinned and Shudras were dark-skinned, and that has, and that now they're even saying that Hindus are uh uh, white people in black bodies, things like that. So that racist equation has a lot of uh, emotion to it with Black Lives Matters and all these things. And of course, it's not true. In fact, the British did the opposite. When they were the white people invading dark India, they then created the myth of the Aryan invasion that the Hindus were also originally white people invading dark India. So they were just doing what the Hindus had done uh, before. Now, the important question is, how do we deal with it? And there's two levels we deal with it. One is a political level, and the other is an educational level. They can cross over to some degree, uh, but they can also be kept uh, separate. In America, Hindus are, raised, are rising politically. And I want to thank the British Hindus for pointing the way. In the last elections, they voted as Hindus and they made a big difference and people had to hear their voice. Hindus in America also have to do that, not just on the caste issues, but on other related issues. Now, one of the attacks on caste that is going on is because Hindus have been very successful in the West and it's attempt to discredit them now, previously, we were always told Hindus were poor, uneducated, uh, superstitious, unclean. Now they're saying Hindus are a dangerous 
affluent, educated, global elite that are threatening potentially democracy. Of course, this is the same people who had previously said Hindus didn't know anything. So it also reflects, reflects the rising status of the Hindus in the West and also the rising status of India globally, particularly under Narendra Modi. And that is why Modi is also often a target of this caste issue, even though he comes from the backward caste, classes, you should say, and even though the, the Gandhis of the Congress party belong to the so-called Brahmin class caste or whatever <laughs> it is. So this is part of the situation we have to deal with, the political will and the educational will, because Hindus and Indians make up a very large, the largest group, immigrant group, and even uh, group in the universities today. So they also need to be organized. The problem is that the children are indoctrinated with this caste and related propaganda before they're even their own parents or gurus teach them it's all false, this is the truth. So we have to teach the Hindu youth and we also have to go into the schools in the West and change these uh, false narratives in order to undermine how basically you're conditioning a person to a certain view before they've heard the other side. You're discrediting, negating the Hindu view before it can even come up. So when Hindus say something, you can say, oh no, you're just protecting caste or whatever it is. So the educational side must be there. And it should also be there in the uh, Hindu temples. It is coming up in a number of them, schools, family education, some pradayas, are mentioning that. We have many like Swami Narayan, Chinmaya Mission, et cetera, that are taking uh, action. So we have to take action. We have to vote. Vote is like the currency today. If you don't vote, nobody takes you seriously. Even though the British Hindus had, had done so much good for Great Britain, were so affluent, educated, until they voted, they were not respected. Groups that had are poor, backward, and all the rest of it, uh, or uneducated in the United States, if they vote, then of course they will also get recognition. So you have to understand the system today and not respond out of defensiveness, you know, oh, you're casting, oh, no, we're not, you know, or whatever else you're, you're going to say. We have to have a proper understanding. For example, all the Hindu temples should put forth a basic platform. This is what Hindu Dharma is. This is the role of the social order. And also, the Hindus have to have a critique of Western civilization, okay? Western civilization has had caste, slavery. Today, there's great uh, differences of the rich and the poor. Uh, there's still colonial issues of, of immigrant populations, uh, refugees. We had all these problems in the Islamic world. Hindus were also regarded as blacks, as uh, uneducated people, just like the blacks of Africa, their civilization was discredited the same way. So we have to take a strong educational uh, role on one level, both in our community and in the general society, and then also politically raise these issues, whether it's school boards, whether it's national elections, Hindus have to be a force, and this is coming up. And that's why we see there is more deference to Hindus at government levels, but some of these other issues have gone on. And then finally, a lot of these issues are coming from the radical left in the West, which is also being discredited by other groups and challenged at different levels. It's also going against Jews and other people. So we have to create allies with these other groups and show how these 
radical left distortions of society are wrong on so many levels, and then teach people the fundamentals of the Vedanta as to what Hinduism is, uh, Upanishads, Gita, Mahavakyas, as Bharat Gupta said, Haryom. Haryom, uh, you, you have enunciated so many action plans for all of us, including uh, challenging the Hindus to become politically oriented. That's really marvelous. And that's the only way, because unless and until you become active in the communities that you live in, people won't know who you are. That's the, the worst thing that can happen to any one of us is when we get taken for granted. Bharatji, I will repeat the same question to you too, sir. Is that to how the thought distortion, how does the India, Bharat today, we are doing what we are able to do in America and UK. We are contesting these thought distortions. Where must India rise to address that thought distortion to achieve our own sense of elevated equilibrium where we belong. Up mute pe hai sab. You are mute. Yeah, yeah. Yes, very beautifully put as a question and I'll try to give you my thoughts on it. You see, the fundamental problem stays the same, which is uh, what was created as a caste hierarchy by the Christian missionaries and then, you know, foisted upon India still is being put into operation at the political level. And that is really the, you know, the target that we should have to dismantle it. And as you mentioned that one should not think of affirmative action or reservation in terms of uh, so-called caste or jati or varana or categories, but one should think of it in economic order. But in order to do this, you have to first dismantle the whole discourse as it was given to us by the missionary, uh, missionary lobby and as it is still being operated here and put into practice. And even a, every election is being fought in India on that ground. So you have to reorient the very idea of what was Varana, Ash, Varana Jati. And you have to assert that it was based upon skills, as I said. It was not based upon who is higher, who is lower. Yes. They do talk sometimes of somebody higher because he's closer to knowledge. But then it is, there are thousands of stories which say that somebody belonging to a lower social status or not so rich has greater knowledge than the highest of the educated. And very often a sage is sent to a courtesan to understand what is Brahma or what is truth or what is action. You know, our Puranas and texts are full of such stories. So the point that India has used this Varana and Varana Ashram Vyavastha, Varana Jati Vyavastha to develop skills is the most important thing. Because after all, what is the reason why the Hindus have been so successful 
in the North American continent and Europe as compared to people belonging to some other religious denominations. They have been so successful because the whole concentration of every Hindu is on the skill that he or she has inherited, the place he or she belongs, and then they can excel. And now in the last uh, almost 100 years, but specifically in India in 50 years, we find that people are jumping from their traditional skills and using that same knowledge and that same uh, ability to innovate to acquire a new skill. And this is how the economic prosperity of India has always sustained itself in the past. And so if people are shown the way in India, as well, of course, they have learned how to do it in, the, in a freer society or in a society where they have greater freedom, like the North American society, they have demonstrated it, the Hindus. But this is what is to be done in India. And uh, the great emphasis on promoting Vidya, promoting skill, promoting kaushal. I mean, our traditional word for skill is kaushal, and kaushal is a very elevated word. Uh, you see, yoga karmasu kaushalam. In every action, if there is kaushal, then that is yoga. And then it is kala su kaushalam, yoga su kaushalam, and any kind of skill. If that is awareness is developed, that how so-called jatis or so-called varana helps you to climb into something more useful, that you don't have to be ashamed of what you have inherited, but that you are recreating a new category for yourself, a new jati or new skill for yourself. That is the way out. Because I don't think that either you can combat uh, the stigma of so-called caste system by just saying, no, the caste doesn't exist, or by saying that we never had it but that you have to recognize the dynamics that it always had. As I always say that India was not just an upper class and a lower class society as perhaps ancient Greece was or ancient China was or Europe was, but India was always a middle class society. The bulk of the people in this country were not even Brahman and Kshatriyas but they were Vaishyas and Shudras because these were the people who were producing all the time. They were the people who were manufacturing things and they were the, uh, you know, they were the cornerstone of prosperity. Now, if that enterprise, sense of enterprise and innovation is associated with traditional skills, we will go a long way. Unfortunately, we had Jawaharlal Nehru and his uh, Fabian socialism, which made a very uh, big dent on our abilities. And this whole business of skill was uh, truncated by him. But we have to come out of that. It's, it's, it's still the struggle against colonialism, which has been internalized. And to understand what are the dynamics of 
the ancient uh, society. Thank That's you how very I much. Thank you. Thank you very much for inspiring people. And you made a very powerful statement here that the, it was the Shudras and the Baniyas who were the manufacturers and the cornerstone of the economy. And that's important to understand that what you do defines you, not what you claim to be. That's what is such a beautiful thing about Sanatan practices is that eventually it doesn't matter how many times you pray, it's what you do that defines you. And that's the beauty of our faith. Satishji, uh, before I come to you with another part of the thing, we are we have another 10, 15 minutes to go before we jump to the questions. Viewers, ask your questions. You will you have a brilliant opportunity to ask questions, and the best question will get a reward, will be acknowledged. And this will be acknowledged by the three gentlemen out here. Or only if they don't agree, then I will put in my voting pattern in this one. I will be the deciding vote. But I think I will not arrive at that. So ask your question. But go, going back to one of the most important ones, on Jaipur Dialogue, we have done shows about the research done by Pew and Carnegie and others. Still, Harvard University still hampers upon caste basis. Pew research, which was done in India, not of this, not of us alone here, they debunked that caste is a privilege item in India. They also gave the statistics that 70% of the Indians are not belonging, are belonging to OBCs, SESTs. So you realize how the division has happened. They gave the data. We have the data to back us in terms of the fact that it's not. Tom, Dick, and Harry. It's Pew. It's Carnegie Foundation. They have established through data and research that this is uh, this the entire caste privilege thing is not relevant in the Indian context. I have the report here because the lady Richa Gautam, Dr. Praveen Sinha, who prepared the slides and everything else, and I'll be happy to share with all of you in India and anybody who is watching it. Uh, these researches are there. Why aren't we using them? Why is it, aren't we asking Harvard and University Davis, the University of California Davis, or whatever that is, or the bogus institution? I call them bogus, and I dare call them bogus, like Equality Labs, funded by a megalomaniac billionaire who hates Hindus, thinks Hindu, and thinks India. Why aren't we able to use these research, American research, Western research? to bring it to their attention. Why not use that as a weapon? Sharmaji. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize. I thought you were speaking rhetorically, still addressing the audience. Um, but I'm happy to pick that up because that, that, that fits in really well with the remaining points that I was hoping to be able to make. Good. Um, firstly, one development has occurred in the last uh, decade or so. And that is that enough Hindus who have an understanding of what the pulse of dharma really is, are now able to articulate their position very effectively in the English media. And so never before have we been able to tell those who seek to oppress us using colonialist tropes what it is they're doing to us. Never before have we been able to dissect it with such clarity that they are unable to refute it. More and more of us are doing this, and the work that uh, Western Hindu scholars have contributed in this area is, is to be applauded and recognized. But this this uh, issue, why are not why are we not able to do this? 
it's well worth understanding that data, information and facts is not going to win this because the opposition, this is not an educational conference. This is not an exchange where wisdom can be shared and learning gleaned because if that was the rule, if that was the, the set of rules in which this exchange was going to be conducted, one party would have to acknowledge, one, that they were wrong, two, that they were abusers of human rights, three, that they did it on such a scale with such malice that it would destroy their institutions and all of their hard work, all of their um, decades, if not centuries, of investment in nurturing and seeding this carefully cultivated colonialist trope. They're not going to just abandon it because of pure research. We have to recognize that this is not an educational exchange as well, uh, uh, solely an educational exchange. It's also a Kurukshetra, right? This caste concept, it's, a, it's almost like an intellectual chakravyu into which so many Hindus wander, thinking that my goodness and my honesty and my purity of intention is going to be sufficient. And like Abhimanyu, they don't get out of it because they don't understand that this is not an educational exchange. This is a battle. This is a yud. And it's a yud which has to be fought with words and ideas. And we need to be able to defend and dissect the weapons which are being directed to us in these words. This is, this is something which is a marvelous, this whole caste trope is such a marvelous creation of hate speech. You know, it's a fabric, it's a garment which has been woven with such finesse and it's been fitted, made to measure for us. And we still are not able to poke holes in it and make it uh, uh, something we can break out of unless we recognize it for what it is. And I'm going to flip the lens. I shared one idea the other uh, earlier on in the session where I said what this does is it denies the Hindu the right to be treated as an equal in front of the eyes of the law. There is another fragment, another fiber of this garment, which I think we should be aware of. And that is this whole idea of inherited guilt. Right? The law is very crystal clear. It says that each person, we're born with a clean slate and that our actions and whether we... Um, follow the criminal code and the civil code, that determines our guilt or our innocence. And yet if you're a Hindu, that doesn't apply because inherited guilt dictates that me with a surname of Sharma, I am somehow inheriting the guilt or the notional guilt or the fabricated guilt of something that other people with my name did going through millennia. The fact that it's a complete lie and it's bogus doesn't matter. That's the trope that I am supposed to be now um, uh, required to repent and make some sort of um, penance for. It's complete nonsense. If we were to flip that lens and let's apply it to the Christian tradition, because firstly, it seems to be Christianists who are absolutely devoted to this uh, particular idea. Let's just uh, apply it to them. If I were to apply exactly the same process, I would be saying that because Christians tore Hypatia limb from limb, because Christians burnt down the library in Alexandria, because Christians raped, pillaged, all their way across, and I think we're responsible for a hundred million uh, deaths in the Americas, every single Christian needs to repent for that and should acknowledge the guilt of that. Should every Christian be paying um, with some sort of uh, penance for the fact that they inflicted the trope of blood libel on the Jewish community, that the Jews were deemed to be guilty and forever guilty because they killed Christ and they persecuted them for almost 2,000 years? Should we ask the Christians to step forward and account for that? What a nonsense. Now, if we are able to articulate this in the manner in which it's being directed at us, I fail to see how any legislator, how any politician who is going to recognize that there is a 
a sense of an injustice which is supported by fact, supported by history, a prejudice that is being leveraged against us. I fail to see how it cannot be recognized. Now, when you start to see that this is what's being done, suddenly this edifice that has been created in front of us, this tissue of lies which looks like an impenetrable wall, it begins to evaporate. It's a house of cards. It's constructed and very carefully nurtured to be something so terrible that until we actually address it, until we actually attack it, until we actually assault it with wisdom, with words, with understanding and with compassion, it seems to be so daunting. But once it's actually challenged, it crumbles and crumble it must. I'm looking forward to an opportunity when the Hindus in uh, the United States have sufficient clarity that would enable them to approach Harvard and say, here is what you are doing to us. Is this the manner in which Harvard, the premier research institution in the Western world, is incapable of addressing an issue, of doing a little bit of research, spending some of those billions of endowments to ensure that they're not being um, exploited by a, a left-leaning um, political machine? Are they incapable of doing that? Surely Harvard can do better than that. I would love to see the opportunity being taken, a forum being created, a Kurukshetra being created by our own community in the United States, where they could then launch these um, invitations, shall we say, invitations to engage with Harvard, and it would evaporate. All it will need is for one such engagement. One such engagement will establish the precedent. Once the precedent is established, this whole charade will come tumbling down. And I, this is why I'm confident that it will happen within the next four or five years. And we will see a Bharat which is free of caste consciousness. Not only that, this trope which has been leveraged so successfully against us, the energy of it will rebound back as Gadma dictates it must to those who created it, who architected it, sculpted it, targeted it, and then launched it with hatred and malice in their thoughts. It will bounce back. It has to. This is the way Gadma works. And so I don't think that this caste issue has so much more of a lifetime. I think once the West puts its guns back in, in their holsters and says, OK, enough, we, we can't do this anymore, it will then give Bharat the breathing space to say, <clears throat> hang on a moment, we can now, we're not under assault, we can now tidy ourselves up, dust ourselves down, patch up the holes in our house, and start to rebuild these relationships. It will happen. Om Tat Sat. Om Tat Sat. That was brilliantly said. And as you said, the battle will be won not by the facts and stories. But I would like to pick up a few things from the movie industry as well. Like Sherlock Holmes, our favorite, my favorite at least, he says, data, data, data. That's what helps me solve the crime. So when the Pew and Carnegie have provided us the data, can that be used as a springboard to reach out to the vitiated, corrupted mind or the lenient or the, or the submitted mind of Harvard who do it for a political consideration, if I may say so? Your thoughts, Dr. Frohley, on that. Mute, mute. Yes, Adiyam. Yes, the data is of some value. But data by itself can always be twisted. Someone else can come up with other data. Uh, for example, we have the data that Hindus are the most affluent, peaceful, educated uh, immigrant population in the United States and so many countries. Now they're trying to push caste into that and said, oh no, they're fighting among themselves or whatever it is. So the data has its place. But the community has to arise as its own entity 
educationally and politically. And we have many Hindu voices at a prominent level of media and government who are not speaking out. They're still kind of uh, downplaying their background. They have to be brought into this discussion as well. And it has to be a religious issue as well. You are distorting our religion, just as you have distorted other religions. And we have the right to interpret our religion. You cannot tell us what our religious books say about anything else. That's not your background. That's not your training. Uh, you aren't a guru. You aren't a pundit. You aren't an acharya. You haven't done any pujas. You don't chant any mantras. You've never even chanted om. And yet you're telling us what our religion teaches. At the same time, you ignore our texts like Upanishads or Gita, Sarvam, Kalvidam, Brahma. You then bring in, uh, you take Manu Smriti out of context, which actually nobody even reads or uses today. Uh, and so we have to reclaim our ability to speak for our own tradition. Sure, other people can describe it too, but we have to have our own voice and own representation. So non-Hindus are not telling Americans, British, what Hindus are while Hindus are there. Why is it that uh, they're giving negative views of Hindus in the school, but they're not taking the children to the Hindu temple nearby? They're not bringing uh, the representatives from the Hindu community nearby to speak. That is a gross a violation of human concern and courtesy. So there has to be a community. And we also have to remember people who practice meditation, follow a guru, uh, do some sort of yoga, chant mantras is also fairly large. We have to address that community and also say, this is what we've brought to you, the West. We didn't bring you uh, terrorism. We didn't bring you poverty. Uh, we didn't uh, bring you crime. This is what we brought, peaceful communities and spiritual knowledge, healing knowledge, breakthroughs in science. So that community has to come out and our representatives have to be allowed on media and educational boards or we should boycott them and challenge them as prejudice. So there's many things like that we can do. How do you know? Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. You, you, know, you elaborated on quite a few things and that was wonderful action plan. And Bharati, to you, coming to you for the last uh, comment for you before we switch over to the question answers from the audience. Wanted to ask you the same thing that I'm checking out with you on this. A lot needs to be done in India as well. So as we, as I said, we are here, we are doing what we can. But where is the research done in India about the discrimination that is race-based in America? Why there are no I mean, Indian politicians asking questions on race discrimination and Black Lives Matter? Why are we so disengaged, uninvolved? And David, uh, Dr. Foley mentioned about one thing is that they may say whatever they say. They have a right to say whatever they say. Where is our narrative? That's what we are trying to do in Jaipur Dialogue here is to create awareness of about who we are. If we don't define ourselves, others define us. And that's where we have become victims of that. Your last word on this, sir. Well, I think uh, a good beginning has been made, at least in the last uh, 10 years or so, uh, not from the political class, because as it very often happens, the political class is the last one to join in 
when they see some electoral returns. But I think uh, we do have in India now, uh, in the 10 years, and I'm very hopeful, uh, a whole class of young people and some not so young or elderly people like myself who have regrouped to raise a voice, to raise the issues, and to bring something very openly of which even the political class is very much aware of. Uh, you see, in India, uh, the discourse with some people is entirely imported. For instance, uh, one can see the Congress party is just repeating the same thing which the seminars of dismantling Hinduism did uh, two months back. So you can see Rahul Gandhi repeating pretty much the same paradigm here that we are abusing Hindutva, not Hinduism, when he is actually abusing he, uh, Hindu, Hinduism. So they are using the same tricks, but they know they are fighting a lost battle. And a whole new sense of faith and uh, rejuvenation in Hinduism is coming about. Uh, modern technology is helping it. Many YouTubers like Jaipur Dialogue and uh, various others on which I keep appearing again and again, uh, they are spreading that awareness. And it has also reached to a certain extent with the political class also because uh, the present uh, setup, uh, the present government or the political party is even thinking of bringing in a uniform civil code, at least, you know, trying it, a, a balloon trial, so to speak. Now, these are all signs of departing from the old order, the old Nehruvian socialist order, division of Indian society into majority and minority. And at some point, I think we will, we will be addressing issues uh, raised by Article 25 uh, to 30 of the Indian Constitution, where people are divided into minority and majority, and minority has more rights than the majority. So all this has become uh, very much a matter of social awareness. About three years ago, I and some friends, we started uh, this organization called Charter of Hindu Demands, and then it became Equal Right for Hindus. And there is still hope for it growing bigger. So this whole movement has begun. And I see a bright future for it, independent of the fortunes of a political party. I, I do think that this is happening. And uh, this would spread very widely in India. This is my hope. Yeah. Thank you, all of you. It has been wonderful for me to be listening to you, listening to your thought processes and, you know, inspiring action based on all things considered to achieve the equi elevated equilibrium and combat the thought distortion that is going on using every tool that is available to us. I'm deeply personally grateful to listening to all of you. Now we will switch over to questions and answers from the audience. 